0: dark dusty corner of the internet I like to call the Timelines Project. Now before you leave to do something more interesting, let me explain what this is you're listening to. This is the first episode of what I hope to be a successful podcast, all about Magic the Gathering, a very fun trading card game with some incredibly complex lore, and that will be the topic of the podcast, the lore and story of Magic the Gathering. Now, without further ado, let's get started with the topic for today, the Brothers' War. For those who don't know, the Brothers' War was the first story told about magic all the way back in 1994. The story follows two brothers, Urza and Mishra, as they fought a 50-60 to 60 year long war over two artifacts called the Might Stone and the Weak
1: Stone. Chapter
0: negative one, prologue. Our story begins and ends on the plane of Dominaria, a world of wonder, imagination, and of course, orphaned children. Born on the year Zero AR, which stands for Argivian Reckoning, and I'll talk more about that later, Urza and Mishra were destined for greatness. If by greatness you mean sinking a continent and plunging their planet into an ice age. But that doesn't matter right now, because I said so. Chapter 1, Orphans Why is it always orphans? I mean, every time. It's like Batman, Superman, all the mans. They were all orphans. It's always orphans. Urza and Mishra started off life fine. As far as I can tell, they lived in the kingdom of Argive on the continent of Teresier. Nothing is known about their mother, but their father fell deathly ill around the time when the boys were nine and ten. Urza is the older one, by the way. Their dying father sent the boys to go live with his friend Toskosia out in a camp in the sandy desert. On arrival, the boys promptly got into two fights. Then Toskosia sat them down and told them all about what the archaeological dig site was about, which is the Thran. They will be very important later on. The Thran were an ancient race of people who had inhabited the region thousands of years before the Argivians and all the other people who were there. The camp was an archaeological dig site, as I've already said, where they recovered artifact remnants of the Thran. Urza and Mishra joined the camp, um, and this won't be relevant anytime soon, but just know there was a girl who was a few years older than Urza and Mishra, and her name was Lauren, and she will appear in uh, the part two of this episode, because this is episode one, part part one of the Brothers War, because it's a long book.
1: Chapter 2.
0: Stick Figures Years passed, and the two brothers were now firmly a part of Toscasia's camp. Though at first they appeared to be very similar, the years changed them in different ways. Urza grew more reserved, constantly studying the artifacts dug out of the desert sands. Mishra, on the other hand, did the exact opposite. He was always where the people were. Urza was an introvert, and Mishra was an extrovert. And then, one day, they found this boat out in the desert. So they dug it up, and they realized that it wasn't it wasn't a boat. It was a sheen that kind of looked like a boat. Um, a way I've described it is, picture the Wright Brothers plane, and then the cockpit of a TIE fighter from Star Wars, and it's like the wings of the Wright Brothers plane on the cockpit of the TIE fighter. K- kind of, like... It's, it's kind of like that. Not really, but ornithopters are real things. You can look up what they look like. But yeah, it was an ornithopter. That's what they called it. Um, that's what it is. I'll have an episode next week talking all about uh, how ornithopters work. It took Urza and Mishra eight months to repair the ornithopter. And then they powered it with a power stone, which is like a magic battery. Mishra, during a test flight discovered giant drawings in the desert, like the ones they have in Peru like those those giant stick figures that no one really knows how they were made it's like that, and that's probably where the inspiration came from Chapter 3 Don't go in there, it looks haunted A few years later Two, to be exact. Business was booming. I... Yeah, business was booming. With the help of the Ornithopter, they had discovered large mounds in the desert filled with old, valuable Thran artifacts. They would send these artifacts back to the capital city of Argive. I forget what it's called, but they sent it back there, and then they would get funding from the Argivian government. Around these artifact mounds... They discovered more lines in the sand, uh, but not drawings. They just kind of seemed to be random, and so they were disregarded. In the mounds, they found more power zones and what are called Su-Chi, which are jackal-headed robots. The su will be important later, and I'll reference them. Just know Su-Chi equals jackal-headed robot. Also, they found more ornithopters, and they made... They repaired them, they made lots more, and then they had like this whole flying force of ornithopters to discover more artifacts. They found all these mounds, and they found all the artifacts, and everything was great. That's why their business was booming. But then one night, Urza made a discovery. All those random lines around the mounds that I had mentioned earlier, um, he mapped them all out, and they were all kind of arcing towards one place the lines were pointing towards the Thran capital or so Urza believed so the next day Urza and Mishra set off in an ornithopter with Doskalsia their mentor and the head of the camp tagging along to make sure they didn't get in any trouble after two days of flying they finally arrived and were promptly attacked by a rock which is literally just a giant bird Rocks, um, I believe, are prevalent in African mythology, though I may be wrong there, or like North African, maybe Central African mythology. I'm not fully sure, but rocks are part of Earth mythology. They managed to land safe enough, though. Um, They dodged the rock, and Urza dubbed the place Koilos, which means in Old Argivian, secret heart. In their exploration of Koilos, they stumbled into what I've always pictured as—it's uh, like a mine shaft, but all techno-y, like a secret lab from like an alien movie, like Stranger Things, which is great. I like Stranger Things. Um, it's got white walls with metal plates, and uh, like the light that you can't really find the source of. It's like it's like that. It's like a secret lab from a. Alien movie. Unfazed, our intrepid heroes continued down the hallway slash secret lab slash mineshaft till they came to a room with a huge power stone in it. It's described as being the size of two fists which is bigger than most power stones which are the size of only one fist or maybe half a fist. Mishra reached towards it and then there was a flash of white light and everything was still absolutely still chapter 4 demons in the closet this is what toscassia saw there was an explosion and with it a rush of air which is what you would expect from a sudden release of energy in a confined space next this is what urza saw after the flash he saw a landscape of wires and cables like a lot of wires and cables and then there were gears but gears stuck in wires and cables and they were all moving in one direction where i don't know but did i mention that they were like <laughs> lots of wires and cables there were a lot of them and some of them were alive anyway urza saw wires and cables and gears and he landed on one of the gears as moved and then it rained oil Are you, uh, confused yet? I thought so. Don't worry, it gets weirder. A giant tower shot out of the wires, and then it disappeared. And then there were thousands of invisible insects. And then just like the tower, they were also gone. Now there were a bunch of really tall people all around Urza, and they were wearing white cloaks and masks and hoods. You know what? If you don't think it's weird yet, here's just a little snippet from the book. And I quote, The bronze-colored dream spider and the other bronze spiders were moving now, along with the elephants, oxen, and the titans, which were there for some reason. That was not part of the quote, by the way. But it seems normal enough. Finally, they were moving along this, like, conveyor belt thing, and they came to a giant metal demon-head furnace. All the white-robed people around Urza jumped into the furnace, and then the dream spider shot lasers at them from a turret. If they didn't. Uh, This sounds like a fever dream to me. Anyway, he wakes up. And this is what Mishra sees. So, Mishra awoke in an infinite hallway. Or at least it looked infinite. He couldn't see the end of it. And it was filled with tiny toys of screaming creatures. Mishra walked down the hallway until he came to a mirror. And he kept walking and he, he was passing by these mirrors. And he would see this humanoid form in each of the mirrors, and each mirror he passed, it, like, progressively changed. Like, it's, it's like a sped-up evolution, like a, what, what is that called? Um, time-lapse. He saw a time-lapse. That's what it's called. It's a time-lapse. And he came to the the final mirror, or at least there was no more in sight, and it was, it was, a like, a lizard demon. That's what it had changed into. It was a lizard demon with... Bones erupting from its flesh, like uh, abomination from the incredible that one Incredible Hulk movie, or from the comics, I guess too. But I feel like it's more, it's better if you see it in live action. It's it's a decent movie too. You know, the Hulk movie wasn't that bad. Uh, but the demon from the mirror turned and broke the fourth wall and looked at him and reached out to touch Mishra. And then he woke up. And that's when the Suchi showed up. Urza and Mishra were both awake and the Suchi showed up. And they had been activated when the power stone, the giant power stone, that's the size of two fists, had exploded. The Suchi chased the group up the stairs and Urza figured out how to shoot an energy beam from his half of the power stone. But the energy beam it was red and it only made the Suchi stronger And faster however when Mishra tried to shoot an energy beam out of his it was green and it made them slower and weaker however it wasn't enough to stop them and they continued to chase them all the way to the entrance where the giant rock which is the you know the bird thing from before it was uh, waiting for them Urza managed to distract the rock by um, using his power stone which activated Machines and made them stronger and stuff. As you might have figured out by now. He used it to power up a giant metal spider. That had a laser on it. And it shot the rock. Um, and then. It it, get, it gets a little crazy. Urza and Mishra get into a fight. When they're flying away. And Urza hits Mishra. And cuts his face. Not with his fist. But with the like the stone. And this is kind of where their positive relationship ends. It just, it goes downhill from here. Chapter 5, and so it begins. In the following months, after the discovery of Koilos, Urza and Mishra fought a lot. That's really it for this chapter they just they fought a whole bunch and one night Mishra tried to take Urza's stone which by the way Urza called the might stone and he called Mishra's the weak stone which obviously made Mishra pretty mad um so Mishra went and tried to take Urza's stone and in the ensuing conflict the two stones caused an explosion that blew up the brother's shared cabin and killed their mentor who you'll remember is Toscasia uh, without Tuscasia to keep it together, the dig site dissolved and everyone went their separate ways. Mishra ran to the desert and Urza went to a neighboring kingdom called Yodia. Chapter 6 Now what kind of a name is Krug? Urza traveled south to the kingdom of Yodia and its capital Krug, which yes is the name. It's a little funky. It's also spelled with a K, um, but there there you have it. Krug. Urza took up working in a clock shop, um, probably a little bit on the outskirts of town, and he was there for three months when the princess of Yodia, Kayla, happened to drop by. With a broken music box. Um, like one of those little wind-up things. But it doesn't have a clown that pops out of it. Because I don't think that was a thing they had. Urza fixed it. And then the princess, she left. Uh, but he he had caught her attention. And so Urza was now on her radar. Now let me let me just explain a few things for setup. So Kayla was engaged to some prince dude, but he died, he drowned, his ship crashed somewhere. It's not important, he he isn't relevant to the story, but her fiancé died, and her father was like, well, what do I do? Her father is the king, obviously. Her father was like, okay, well, what do I do now? And so he decided that he would do, like, the physical contest thing, standard things in stories, and as you'll see, Urza's going to outsmart the king and, like, do this whole thing. And his plan is he's gonna make a giant metal robot, like a metal sushi, and pick up... Or, sorry, let me rewind. The king's challenge was he made a giant jade statue of himself, like a tiki man. I have always pictured it, I guess. But jade, very solid, very heavy. And the challenge is whoever can move the jade statue across the plaza where it was located would be, be the, the prince, the, Kayla's husband, fiancé, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, Urza, uh, he, he doesn't really seem like the type to kind of go after a princess, but along with marrying Kayla, who is supposedly very beautiful, you also get a pile of treasure called a dowry. And in that pile is a book, a tome to be precise. It's the Thran Tome, which is a card now, I think. Anyway, very important. Urza knew all about the Thran, and he was like, I need that book. I really need that book. And so Urza decided to become the heir to a kingdom just to get a book. There you have it. So Urza gave... Plans to for an ornithopter to uh, a man named Rusko who owned the shop where Urza worked at. And he gave him the ornithopter plans so that he would fund his project. And Rusko's like, well, okay, I kind of like you. You're all right. You you help me with the clock shop. So, okay, I'll help you. And Rusko will be important much later. But for now, no, he he bought all of Urza's supplies. All right. Now, back to Urza, as he began constructing the giant Tsu-Chi. It was humanoid with backwards knees and long ape arms and a jackal-like head, and it took Urza two months to make his creation, and seeing that he is making it from memory with limited supplies and its giant, that's pretty incredible. I couldn't do that. So Urza's plan was to move the jade statue with his mind because he made the construct with his mind. And that's how he's going to. Outsmart the king. And of of course. The construct was able to lift. And move the statue easily. And so Urza won the day. Or had he. The king was furious. Because he had been tricked. Of course he was mad. And so he was more inclined to kill Urza. Than reward him. Lucky for Urza. He had Rusko. And I told you he would be important later. And he'll still be important later, I don't, he, he's important later, just, yeah. Rusko told the king about the ornithopter plans, and this convinced the king to let Urza marry his daughter, so that the king could have access to Urza's brilliant mind, because clearly he's a genius, um, and so the wedding ceremony happened, it lasted for a whole day, and into the early morning of the next, and the happy couple went to bed, thoroughly married,
1: Chapter 7
0: Puff the Magic Dragon. Now that we've switched back to Mishra, I think it's a good time to mention that the rest of the book will switch back and forth between Urza and Mishra. So this chapter's about Mishra, the next chapter will be about Urza back and forth. There's like Scene transitions, which I call half-chapters, but otherwise it's, it's back and forth. So, well, Urza became the prince and heir to a kingdom, Mishra had become a slave. Now, you may be wondering how exactly he got into this situation. You see, when Mishra ran off into the desert, he was captured by a, the local desert tribe called the Swadari, and they made him a slave like they do with everyone. Um, who is captured in their territory and isn't a Swadari or another one of the desert tribe people. He probably would have been a slave until he dropped down dead from exhaustion, except one of his friends from Toscasia's camp had also joined the Swadari, and his name was Hajar. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but it's Hajar. Hajar didn't want his old friend digging ditches as a slave, and so he appealed directly to the Quadir, the leader of the tribe, and Mishra was forcibly dragged before said Qadir. Hajar, Hajar had told the Qadir that Mishra was a learned scholar, as he was. he was. He was really smart and also a hard worker. The Qadir decided to make Mishra his son's tutor. At first, things didn't go so well for Mishra or Hajar, too, because if Mishra failed, so did he, and then they would both be executed. The Quadir's son didn't want to learn. Then Mishra started telling him stories from Argive, um, and Argive is Mishra's home, if you don't remember. And, uh, of course, he also taught him how to swear in Argivian. Months passed, and the Quadir's son was finally willing to learn, and everything was great, except Mishra had a dream, which doesn't seem bad at first, but dreams in magic are always bad. Always, because they always mean something. Otherwise, they wouldn't be included. So, this is a dream similar to the one he had at Coelos with the demon. And he dreamed of the weak stone and Phyrexia. Bum, bum, bum. Now, for those of you who don't know, Phyrexia is hell. The concept of Phyrexia, it's it's based off of Dante's Inferno. It's hell, but like with lots of machines and oil and that kind of thing, it's mechanical hell. Um, it has nine spheres, um, and they're it's like different layers. It's like an onion. Ogres have layers, and and anyway, I'll I'll get into this later. But know that the Phyrexians were the first big baddie of magic. They are the the bad guys for the first the first age of magic lore. So, just know, they're important, they're here. Mishra's dreaming of an unknown place that may or may not be Phyraxia. In the dream, he's in a metal forest, and then he follows this singing sound to a pyramid made of wires and cables. These, These dream sequences are the best. Then, to Mishra's right emerged a giant mechanical dragon, better known as a dragon engine. It was brass-colored and had a wedge-shaped head like a shovel, and a long serpentine neck, elephantine body, so very large, and its four legs were like those of a lion, but with larger claws, like, actually like a dragon, probably, like a dragon. And its, its back legs were different. Its back legs were not legs, they were tank treads, really. Of course, Mishra ran, as one does when confronted with a mechanical dragon, and of course, as one does when confronted with a tasty morsel, the dragon engine chased Mishra. Mishra ran into the aforementioned pyramid and managed to find his weak stone, which was there for some reason. I think it was the source of the singing. Mishra pacified the dragon but then was confronted by a demon from his previous dream sequence back in Coelhoes. It was human- humanoid with cables for muscles, horns, and wire hair. No wings, though. This- these demons don't have wings. I've always kind of imagined him as a cross between Cable um, from Marvel Comics and really any demon in magic, minus the wings. It's like Cable, but a demon. The demon attacked Mishra, and then Mishra woke up in the pitch-black night to find something had followed him from his dream into the real world. Chapter Six and a Half, Puff the Magic Dragon Returns. There was a ripple in the desert sands of the Swadari camp, which quickly grew to a roar, and then the dragon engine exploded from the desert below. Shovel head first, and then its long chain-like neck. The night guards tried to fend off the beast, or machine, but being made of metal, their attacks were not very effective. More warriors and guards joined the fray, including the quadir himself. Still, they could do nothing to actually affect the dragon engine. Hajar, Mishra's best friend, rushed to find him because he knew Mishra with ex- his experience in artifice was the only one who could stop the rampaging beast. Mishra told Hajar he needed the weak stone to stop the dragon engine. The only problem was when Mishra was captured by the Swadari, the Quadir took it because it's a shiny green stone and looks cool. And, unfortunately, the Quadir was leading an attack on the dragon at that moment. Turns out, the dragon engine doesn't just look like a dragon. It also breathes... Fire, or not fire, but steam, scalding steam. And it breathed a cloud of it right into the Quadir's men, killing all of them almost instantly, like flesh melted right off the bones. Bad stuff. Don't want it. Keep it away. The weak stone was on the Quadir's corpse, and Hajar managed to retrieve it and brought it back to Mishra. Mishra managed to not only weaken the beast, but completely control it. The Quadir's son was made Quadir, and he made Mishra his wizard for stopping the dragon engine. Chapter 8 The only slightly relatable character in this book. A couple years had passed since we last saw Urza. The palace of Krug, capital of Yodia, now had a new wing called the Palace of Artifice. It was, of course, where Urza did all his work making ornithopters and other things. A newcomer, a man named Thanos, had just arrived at Urza's workshop. Thanos found Urza in the central domed workshop located at the back of the palace where he was instructing a group of workers in the construction of an ornithopter. As you'll remember, ornithopters were the Thran flying machines that Urza and Mishra reconstructed. Urza was very busy, and so Taunus got his attention by throwing a very lifelike toy snake at him. Urza was delighted with the snake's design, and Thanos got the apprenticeship job. I think now is a a good time to, because this is when it starts to appear, it's a good time to mention a semi-important subplot that happens between Urza and Kayla, who is Urza's wife and also the princess of Yodia, future queen of Yodia. So the subplot goes that Urza gets really caught up in his work and just ignores Kayla, and no one likes being ignored, so she's annoyed um, for obvious reasons. And this escalates into other things, just marital issues. It's it's a part of the book. It's important. If you read it, you'll understand it better. If you want to learn more about it, I won't go a lot in depth because it's not really important to... The overall plot, um, I'll mention it now and again, but if, if you want to learn about it, read the book. I'll mention the subplot next week as well, um, or two weeks from now, not next week, when part two comes out, because it's, it's two weeks, not one week. I just wanted to mention it now so it's not confusing when it comes up. But meanwhile, in a different part of the castle, the king was having a meeting with his advisors. Rusko, who was the owner of the clock shop that Urza worked at, and also helped him win that competition. Anyway, Rusko, who, this is the last time he's important, but I told you he would be important. I told you. Anyway, he came up with this idea for dropping bombs out of the ornithopters that Urza was making. um, Because they were getting a little nervous about the Swadari, who... Uh, Mishra was with because they're kind of like taking over the desert region and the Yodians and the king and everything, they're getting a little nervous. Um, I only mention this because like the urza Kayla subplot, it's also important later the bomb stuff. Chapter 9 A Not-So-Relatable Character the Kwidir's son, who will from now on be known as just the Quidir, because his actual name is never given, and it's just easier to refer to him as he's referred to in the book, as the Quadir, because he's now the Quadir. So, yeah. It's it's the Quadir. He's the Quadir's son, or the past Kwidir's son, but he's now the Quadir. A few years had passed for Mishra. He was accompanying the Quidir around the desert as he conquered the other tribes, expanded the Empire. They were currently outside the great desert city of Zegon. They just had a little bit of a problem. The Dragon Engine, which they had been using most effectively to convince the other tribes to surrender, um, it seemed to be having a little bit of trouble. The Dragon Engine seemed to have hit an invisible wall half a mile out from Zegon's towering white walls, which I think it's Zegon's inspiration is Jericho. The quadir could do nothing, and so they just, they waited. They camped outside the city. Then, one night, Mishra had a mysterious visitor. He was coming back from a a meeting, and she was waiting for him in his tent. She said her name was Ashnod. You may know her from her famous altar, but she doesn't have a card yet. I'm still waiting for it. Ashnod was coming as the official representative of leader of, the leader people of Zegon. She had made this staff that messed with the nerves, um, or messed with nerves, and it was able to affect the dragon engine as well. And that, that was its range, about half a mile. And so they were, they were keeping it away. The only problem was the staffs, they're magic staffs, and they make the user really tired really fast. It's kind of like tapping a creature. And so the uh, the leader people of Zegon had sent Ashnod as a representative because they were running out of guards because they were getting super tired too fast and they weren't going to be able to keep the dragon engine away. So Mishra agreed to their terms of the they would surrender and not get destroyed, but only on one condition, that Ashnod had to stay as Mishra's apprentice, because he recognized that she was very smart. Uh, soon after that they packed up and packed up camp and left the city of Zegon to head further east. Are you starting to see like some of the weird parallels between Urza and Mishra? They're both in powerful positions, but more like a second of command kind of thing. They both use their talents with artifacts to win their way into their respective positions. And now they both have for apprentices. Weird. Almost like the parallels are a sub theme of the book. Chapter ten So Peaceful Peace Talks. Back in Yodia and its capital crew, there was talk of war. And if not war, then something similar to war. Lots of violence. There was talk of violence. The Swadari, which you'll remember, is the tribe Mishra was a part of. The Swadari, they were causing a few problems for Yodia and Argive, which you'll remember is Urza and Mishra's home. So, the king and his council got together and came up with this brilliant idea. They would invite the Argivians, they would invite the desert tribes, and they would invite these other people who aren't relevant, called the Corlissians, to peace talks. And, uh, Coralist, by the way, is in between Argive and Yodia. They have no significance. They're just there. It's like that one guy at a party. Then, once the desert leaders were there, they were going to bomb them with those bombs that Rusko had been working on back in Chapter 8. The meeting was adjourned, and Kayla went to tell Urza that she thought her father was planning something. Oh, yeah. um, This whole talk of war thing, it was more like implied. If you read, you understand. But Kayla's just like, um, something's wrong. And Urza wasn't there because he's working. Um, and so she goes to tell Urza that something's going on. And he's just like, ah, it's, it's nothing. Which furthers their subplot of Kayla's pissed and Urza's not doing anything. Chapter 10 and a half. Not so peaceful peace talks. A month later, the peace plan was all laid out. The meeting was in Corliss. That's really Coraliss's only relevance is the peace plan happened there. They are part of the Brothers' War later, but they have no significance. Uh, the Yodians would give the Coralissians some ornithopters for their help. Um, that's, that's the other thing. Because they were giving them ornithopters, Urza had to come along, um, and that's, that's why he's there. The king, the captain, the guard, Urza, and Rusko all set off for the meeting, Urza with his ornithopters, and Rusko had a metal band thing that Urza had invented that would later be called Urza's Avenger, um, as you'll, you'll see why. They all arrived at the designated site for the meeting. The Corlysians and the Argivians were already there, which just left the Swadari and the other desert tribes. Negotiations began between three present countries as they waited for the desert tribes. Three days after the peace agreements had begun, the Swadari finally arrived. They had more people than anyone else and, of course, had brought the Dragon Engine. And this was new. This is new stuff. Like, no one had seen this Dragon Engine before and they just kind of show up with it. And everyone's like, wait, what? They have a dragon engine. Wow. Um, Yeah, so now the peace talks can finally begin. Uh, So Mishra and Ashnod accompanied the Quidire in the peace talks. And Urza accompanied the Yodian king. And there was a Corlysian merchant lord. I forgot what her name is. I don't think it's mentioned. And then... There was the Argivian king as well, though he has no real power. He is a puppet king, which isn't relevant. After the peace talks, Urza and Mishra met privately before the talks began. It was an awkward conversation, but not unfriendly. The negotiations officially began, and immediately the Yodian lord and the Quiddir got into an argument, as you can say. The king, in a fit of rage, ordered the bombing of Swadari to commence, and the peace talks ended in flames and chaos. The king and many Swadari were killed, the king of the Yodians and many Swadari were killed, and nothing had been resolved. If anything, it was much, much worse. The Argivians and the Corlysians fled, and the Swadari were in retreat. So Urza returned to Yodia, the worse for wear. Chapter
1: 11.
0: The Sorry State of Affairs Urza arrived with the sad news of the king's death, and there was a funeral. Everything appeared to go back to normal, but there was unrest in the air. Urza retreated into his workshop and didn't emerge for months. Kayla tried to get Urza to come back and stop sleeping in his study. Finally, Kayla asked Thanos, Urza's chief apprentice, for help because he was really the only one who was actually seeing Urza. She at she was at her wit's end and trying to rule a kingdom, mourning for her father and missing her husband, Urza. Kayla was slowly cracking under the strain. Thanos explained how he thought Urza was feeling. He was afraid to face her because he felt responsible for the king's death. No one blamed Urza except himself. He thought everyone did. He thought everyone would, but no one really did. So, Kayla sent a message to Urza, and he came back to the main palace and stopped sleeping in his study and not seeing anyone. And this this chapter is really only about the subplot. So, yeah.
1: Chapter
0: 12, Dante's Foul Orchard Mishra was on a mission. It was winter of the year of the not-so-peaceful peace talks. He was traveling across the desert with his dragon engine and Ashnod. His goal was coilless. But to get there, they had to cross the desert. And what's one thing deserts are known for? Sand. And to some extent, sandstorms. Now I hear you saying. So they had to get through some sandstorms. No big deal. Well, you would be wrong. You see, these sandstorms are so big that they, their shadows just block out the sun. They're so strong, they create tornadoes on their leading edges. You would be a pile of bones in minutes if you got caught in one of these things. Luckily for Mishra and Ashnod too, the dragon had a small cubby in its back, like a little, a little dent that you could stay in and be safe. But, they had to stay in it at all times, and it was not very roomy, because the storm was going twenty-four ten. That's right, 10 whole days, 10 long days and nights in a tiny hole, under a metal dragon's armor, with only one other person as your companion. That, that right there sounds like my worst nightmare, seeing as I'm rather claustrophobic, and an introvert, and I don't, I don't like it, that sounds awful. When they finally emerged from the storm, they f- found they had finally arrived at Coilus. They went down that like weird futuristic mineshaft thing that I was mentioned much earlier in this episode, um, and they came to the room where the big power stone that was the size of two fists had been. Mishra placed another power stone in its place, and the portal to another world opened. I don't really understand why you can just replace the giant one with a a singular power stone, but it works apparently. So they went through the portal and into the jungle from Mister's dream way back in chapter 7. This was not the um, first dream. This was the one with the demon and the dragon. This was Phyrexia, and they, they were in Phyrexia. Or at least they were in a they were in a small part of Phyrexia on the outer sphere. So this is like the surface of Phyrexia. They walked down a gentle slope out of um, the fetid swamp where they had land where they had landed, and to a lake of oil. And in this lake, I guess it's really a just it's a dent in the ground with a lot of oil. But in this lake, there were Four dragon engines. Mishra tamed all of them with his weak stone. And as they were preparing to leave, a giant metal ship, like a like a land dreadnought, appeared. And it but it was on treads. It's like a giant tank, but it looks like a like a ship, I guess. It's it's described as being a ship with like metal saw blades, the whole shebang. It wrecked the first dragon engine, and then the others ran off. And Mishra and Ashnod were left to fend for themselves. So, like the very intelligent humans they were, they ran like the devil. Which is kind of ironic, because they're in hell, and they're running like the devil. They made it through the portal, and Mishra grabbed the power stone and pulled it out of its place, deactivating the portal. Mishra hurried back to the surface with Ashnod in tow just in time to see three dragon engines burst from the sands deep below in the cavern Mishra had just left the portal to Phyrexia reopened
1: chapter 13
0: peace talks out of nowhere There was an offer for more peace talks. Kayla and her council, including Urza and Tanos, were uncertain that this wasn't a trap, and rightfully so. However, it made more sense to accept and see what happened than to continue as they were. Over the last couple years, the desert tribes had been raiding Yodia's northern border, and the defenses were stretched thin. Preparations were made, and the Swadari began the long trek to Yodia's capital, Krug. The Swadari were bringing with them the Dragon Engine, as everyone knew, but it was pulling this giant metal fortress behind it. Imagine like a cone, but with the top cut off, and covered in armor and the size of a house, and with ports for guns and things. Obviously, Kayla and her council were at first uncertain, but decided to let it slide in the interest of peace. The Swadari arrived, and the peace talks got off to a great start. The Quadir was there, and Mishra was his re- official representative. Or the Quadir wasn't there, and Mishra was his official representative. And then, nothing, nothing happened. The peace talks just kept on going. Nothing bad, or nothing bad happened. Mishra was prepared to make a deal um, to stop the hostilities. Everything was great. Urza took Mishra on a tour of his workshop, and there were plenty of feasts. Um, however, okay, not everything was going great. There was one problem, and that was the terms of Mishra's deal. All of it was fine except for one point. Mishra wanted
1: the Mightstone. <laughs>
0: Chapter Fourteen, Not So Peaceful Peace Talks, Part Two, The Reckoning. Thanos, Urza's apprentice, was going to meet Ashnod, Mishra's apprentice. It was late at night, and the feast was feasting was over. He stopped by Urza's workshop to discover Kayla, queen of Yodia, and Urza's wife just leaving. Thanos then headed to Ashnod's quarters because they had agreed to go and visit. Uh, the war machine, so that Ashnod could give Thanos a tour. And they they talked for a while before they left. They talked about Arza, they talked about Mishra, they talked about artifacts. And while they were talking, because Thanos had brought drinks, Ashnod accidentally let slip a diplomatic secret. I don't really know how to explain it, so here is a passage from the book. And I paraphrase, Mishra gets what he wants, through war or guile. And if everything's gone well enough, he's already succeeded. So you see what, what Ashnod's saying, or I guess you don't see, you hear. What, see, what, what you hear is Mishra was trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes to get what he wanted. He was like, he was planning something secret. He had peace talks as a guise. And Thanos came to this realization that maybe he tricked Kayla into taking Urza's might stone. Thanos rushed to Urza's workshop and woke him up. Realizing the stone was gone, Urza hurried to the royal wing of the palace with Thanos close behind him. Thanos fell behind, and by the time he arrived at the royal suite, Urza had managed to regain his stone and Mishra and him were in a battle of wills, just like their fight in Chapter 5. Mishra escaped, and Urza chased him. He was too slow, though, as the entire Swadari uh, peace party was gone. I'll accept Ashnod, of course, who was captured. Okay, so I'm going to have to end it there. I kind of want to keep them not too long, because I understand, you know, attention spans are rather short these days I hope the few people who actually listened enjoyed I'm gonna be back in two weeks for part two of the brothers war next week is gonna be something relating to the brothers war but it's not gonna be a continuation of this so anyway if you enjoy this it's I got lots of things planned this is the timelines project the magic historian because that's the title I've chosen for myself Signing off. That's all, folks. See you next week.